Well, good morning. Um, now that we're all awake and, and with it. Um, I want to do something I don't normally do here. I want to start off with a quote. Um, and this comes from a um, British theologian uh, by the name of N.T. Wright uh, in one of his books I had to read a while back. And I just want to throw this out there um, and get you thinking about it. Uh, some of you may hear this and, and think it's just out there or wrong. Um, some of you it may resonate with, but I want you to think about this. There's no such thing as an individual Christian. There's no such thing as an individual Christian. This morning we're going to be taking a look at Ephesians chapter 4. Now Ephesians was written by the Apostle Paul while he was in jail. Um, And he starts the first half of the letter talking about um, the greatness of what God has done for us. Uh, the greatness of the salvation um, that God has brought us through his son, Jesus Christ, and the way that this salvation doesn't just forgive us of sin, as it does that, but it transforms our lives. It recreates us into t- new, uh, new humans, a, a new humanity, if you will. Um, take a look at Ephesians chapter 2, kind of to, to understand what, he, what Paul is talking about in this greatness of salvation. Starting in verse 1, Paul writes to the church at Ephesus. He says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of the sinful nature and following the desires, its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming age, we might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And it's not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. The main point of the first two, three chapters of Ephesians for Paul is to explain this. To explain that once um, our lives were were wrecked by our own cravings, by our own desires, the desires of the world, um, we were shaped by this. We were held captive by this. We were, as Paul says, we were dead in all of this. We, We had no life in us. But because God's love for us, because he's passionate about us, because he desires us, He sent his son to redeem us out of that. And not just redeem us out of that, but transform us into something new. Into into humans who are alive, to people who are alive in Christ Jesus. Who are fashioned together. He says that we are his workmanship. Fashioned together to bring glory to God. And so that these first three chapters, he talks about how we've been taken from death to life, from, um, from no purpose to now having the purpose of glorifying God. And then he turns to chapter 4. 
and he starts a whole new train of thought. Okay, And that's where we're going to pick up when we spend most of our time in Ephesians chapter 4. And he goes on to explain, now that we've had this great salvation, now that we've, we've experienced this transformation of our lives from death to life, so what? Now what do our lives look like? And what do we do with all of this? So let's begin in, in Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, we'll begin reading verses 1 and 3. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Here Paul begins, um, in a way he does in, in a lot of his other letters, he he goes from the doctrine piece to, to helping people understand what this means in their lives, and he admonishes the church at Ephesus to live a life worthy of the calling that they have received. To, in a sense, um, live up to what Christ has done for you. In, in the book of Philippians, um, our life group that we were in this past year, or this past uh, trimester, just went through the book of Philippians. And in Philippians uh, chapter 2, he says this same basic thing. He says, live a life worthy of the gospel. Part of what it means to be a Christian is to, to live up to the calling that we've received in Christ. The calling to be a new kinds of people, different kinds of people. People who embody Christ himself. People who demonstrate this. And then he goes on to kind of give some, um, some qualities or virtues of what that looks like. He says, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient and bearing with one another. And this term to be humble would have been the worst term to use in the ancient world to actually encourage someone to be humble. The Romans would have despised someone who is humble. They would have looked down upon them as someone who is weak. To be humble means to be more willing to take injury upon ourselves wrongly than to give it to another. To be willing to suffer injury or suffer wrong rather than to exert our own rights, rather than to exert our own position. Um, And so Paul tells the church to be humble. Now, this doesn't mean self-degradation. We we have this notion in our world that to be humble is to refuse all um, accolades or or all um, praises that someone can give us. That, that, you know, we, we, we have this picture of humility of, when someone wants to praise you, you're like, oh, no, no, I didn't do anything good. I, no, no, don't talk to me. That's just false humility, through and through. Because more often than not, what we're doing is we want it to continue. We want the person to keep speaking well of us, but yet for us to appear like, no, we don't want that. Okay? As Christostom, Christostom was a, uh, one of the early church fathers. He was a a famous preacher um, in the ancient church. He talks about this term humble, and he says that to be humble is to be aware of our limits and to remember that we are saved by God's grace. We will remember that all is grace. To be humble is to understand our limits as people, which means understanding what we can't do, but also understanding what we can do. Because we have been uniquely and amazingly created by God for good works, as he said earlier. And so humility isn't just refusing praise. 
is to rightly acknowledge that all in our lives is the grace of God. And then he goes on to say that we should also embody gentleness, which is connected to to being humble and, and similar to the idea of meekness. It means to happily serve others, to submit to them, to not have to be first, to be willing to be second to other people. We don't it, it, it kind of has this connotation of one who has power and one who has ability and one who can do great things, but yet restrains themselves for others and controls themselves, doesn't exert their power, doesn't, doesn't use their power, but rather prefers other people to go first, prefers to serve other people with their abilities and with their strengths. We are also to be patient. And when we hear hear this kind of, this encouragement to be patient, um, what normally comes up in my mind is um, the guy, and, and, and I usually don't use that term in the morning, but, but the guy in front of me driving to work who's going so slow, and I've already left 10 minutes late, and he's just going 10 miles under the speed limit, and when I think of being patient, I think of, okay, I can't get angry with this guy. I can't get angry with this person. I gotta be patient. Okay, all right, I'll get there. It'll be all right. And that's kind of what we think about patient. We think of this idea of waiting. Um, a better way of understanding that, at least in the context that Paul would have in, in the first century world, to be patient was to not repay harm. That when one, someone does something against you, whether that's in, in terms of does something against your honor or against your family um, or, or against your own person, to be patient is to not seek revenge. It's to not seek to rectify that situation. Not to be uh, quick to get angry is the connotation that patience has. We're, we're slow to anger. And finally, he says to bear with one another. And here the, the notion is to, um, to bear with other people in their weaknesses and in their faults. And we normally think of it as, as putting up with people. You know, this coworker has this annoying habit that you just can't get over, and so you just kind of bear with it, you put up with it, okay? Or you ignore it. Though all the time it kind of, it gets under your skin like a little uh, splinter or something, and it just kind of festers. And it sticks there, and it kind of pokes at you every now and then. That's not what Paul's talking about here when he says to bear with one another. He means that in our weaknesses and in our faults with one another, those things ought not to matter. That we bear with one another in love, which means we overlook those things to the point that we no longer see them because we love the other person. That we're, we're, we're so um, given over to that person in love that we fail to see anything, any fault or any weakness. Not that we are naive or fool ourselves, but we no longer count those things. We no longer pay attention to those things. They become um, minuscule, unimportant. Now, the interesting thing, and Paul encouraging the church to, 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 with these four things, is he's basically encouraging us to embody the life of God himself. These are not just four random qualities. This is the nature of God as it's been portrayed to us in the person of Jesus, who himself was humble, being the almighty God, became like one of us, 
setting aside all his position and all his power, he humbled himself to dwell with us. He was gentle. When he could have brought about his kingdom with tens of thousands of angels and armies and the whole power of God, he chose to bring about his kingdom by being broken on a cross, by subjecting himself to being beaten, to serving other people, even at the cost of his own life. He was patient, and he is patient with us. He is slow to condemn us in our sin. He is slow to repay us for our sins, but he is patient, wanting us to come to repentance, wanting us to come back to him. And he bears with us in our own weaknesses, and in our own failings, and our own inadequacies. So the things that Paul encourages the church here to do at the beginning of, of chapter 4 is nothing more than to model what has been modeled for us. To live the way in which Christ himself lived. If you will, to imitate Christ as we have seen him. And that's what it means to live a life worthy of the calling that we've received. It means to embody Christ in our everyday lives. So Paul goes on here um, in these verses. He says, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Notice here, we're not told as the church to create unity. Think of great little programs to, to unify one another, to bring people together around uh, this idea or, or, or this new study or this or that or the next thing. He says, keep the unity you already have. You see, the church is one. That's a fact. It's a reality. Because we are in Christ, as he's going to explain later. Therefore, our job is to live what's already true about us. To live out the unity that we already have in Christ Jesus. And the world talks a lot about unity. About coming together for a common purpose. Um, for change or to make a difference in the world, that, that we can be uh, unified and rally together. And typically the unity that I've seen in the world, and your lives may be kind of different than mine. I, one of the things I realized in teaching a life group last trimester is that I kind of project. I just kind of assume that my life is pretty much like everyone else's life. Um, and so if I experience something, I kind of assume that other people experience it too. Um, so if you haven't experienced this, just go with it. Um, the unity I typically encounter in the world um, is pretty superficial. We're unified because we like the same music or we like the same style. We're unified because we just we kind of have this job together, so we're stuck together, and that's kind of a unity. But unity is, is kind of superficial, and as, as soon as you break with whatever that common link is, you're, you're done, you're out. Okay? If you break with the style, then you're, you're out. You're no longer part of us. Okay? The unity that Paul is getting ready to talk to us about here is thicker than that. We're going to see it's a unity with diversity. It's a unity for the purpose of growing up into maturity. It's a unity for the purpose of living out the kingdom of God and of manifesting the kingdom of God and what Christ has done in our lives, as we're going to see here in a little bit. He goes on in verse 4. It says, there is one body 
and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, who is over all and through all and in all. And here Paul directly now talks, uh, begins to talk about this unity that we have. And notice that it, it's set up in kind of a Trinitarian fashion. Um, as Christian, we believe in a Trinity. We believe in one God and three persons. And, and here Paul kind of enumerates that for us when he says that there's one Spirit, there's one Lord, there's one God. And so he, he kind of wraps our unity up again with the nature of God himself, with who God is. God has created unity through his Son. Through what Jesus has done on our behalf in the cross. That is, if we are in Christ, according, according to Paul, if we are in Christ individually, then we are in Christ together. Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through 28. Paul picks up the same idea, but, but he kind of nuances it with the connotation of barriers or boundary markers. Um, barrier or boundary marker, at least the way I'm thinking about it here, is this notion of what sets us apart, where, where the boundaries are between people who are in and people who are out, people who are with it and people who aren't. We, we often, in, in different communities in which we walk, there's always boundaries. Whether it's at work, you know, you got the management versus the workers. Um, you know, at, at school, you got the administration versus the teachers. So you always have these kind of boundary markers of who's where. And Paul directly talks about that in the context of our unity in Galatians chapter 3. He says, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you have been baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. First thing I want to point out here is, is Paul tells us to clothe ourselves with Christ. This notion that, that if we are baptized into Christ, if, we, if we've taken upon ourselves the name of Christ, then our identity, who we are, is to be found in Christ. And he relates it to the metaphor of getting dressed. As you all, obviously, got dressed this morning. Okay, You've put something on. As Christians, we're to put on Christ. As if he's a robe, as if he's... As if he's... As if he's our clothes, we're to, to dress up to look like him. And then further, he goes on to say there's, there's no longer Greek, nor Jew, nor Greek, slave, nor free, male, nor female. That is, ethnic and racial markers no longer shape our identity. They no longer cause um, boundaries and barriers the community of Christ. There's no longer slave nor free. Economic status and social standing no longer matter in the unity of the church. It doesn't matter about the haves and the have-nots anymore. But those, those notions of our status and our identity have been destroyed in Christ. Male and female no longer is gender a marker of who's a first-class citizen and who's a second-class citizen as it was in the first century, of who's important and who's not, of who's significant and who's just along for the ride. You see, as believers, our identity 
is to be found in putting on Christ and being clothed with Christ. Not all these markers that we seek to identify ourselves. If we seek to identify or find our identity in our marriage or even in our singleness, in our job, in, in our abilities, in what we do, in our sexuality, in, in anything, in our money, in our status, in what family we're from, or what position we, we play in the church or at work, all of that is sin. All of that is to fail, a failure to recognize that who we are as believers is Christ. Our lives are wrapped up in him. And that's what gives us significance. That's what gives us meaning. That, that's what gives us um, our identity. Our identity is nothing less than Christ living through us through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, bringing us back to God. That's what the Christian life looks like, according to Paul here. Let's move on. Ephesians uh, chapter 4, verse 7. Paul goes on, he's, he's talking about this unity, and now he, he switches from the unity he talks about. The, there is one spirit, there's one Lord, there's one God. And now he goes on to talk about the, diverse, the diversity that we have. He says, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ appointed it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. Then he has this kind of parenthetical um, uh, thought here to explain what he just said. He says, what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And it's here that Paul starts talking about the, the unique diversity that we have within this unity that we have been given in Christ. And this diversity, in Paul's understanding, the diversity is based in the gifts that God has bestowed upon us. Or as, as he phrases it here, as the grace that has been given to us. The grace and gifting um, Paul is using interchangeably um, here. And th- this is reminiscent of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 through 6. There, he, he highlights the same idea and he puts it this way. He says, there are different kinds of gifts, but the same spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but the same God works all of them in all men. Even though there is a diversity of gifts, there's still unity in the body. And one of the problems with this diversity is often we get envious or jealous. We think, oh wow, if I could just have that gift, my life would be set. Oh, if I could be like them, everything in my life would be happy. If I could just do what they're doing, things would be great. God has given you the giftings that you have because only you can have them. You have them for a unique purpose. And as believers, the teaching of the New Testament is that 
We all have gifts. We all have abilities, not just natural abilities, supernatural gifts from God that have been given us for the work of the ministry, for the work of building up his kingdom. And that's what Paul's talking about here. You see, we think that, and Paul uses the metaphor of a body um, elsewhere, we think the cool parts are, are really the, the important gifts. You know, people who get to speak well, the people who are always up front doing things, you know. That's the really cool part. And I was, I was talking, my, my wife's a nurse, and I was talking to her this morning. You know, how can, I, how can I communicate the importance of the insignificant gifts of, of, or the so-called insignificant gifts, the ones that people don't see? And so we were battering around all these ideas. And, um, it comes down to this. If you think about your body, just as a person, if one thing goes wrong in your physical body, your whole body can shut down. We have a natural reflex to blink. That seems pretty insignificant, and I guarantee you, you have probably not thought about that other than this moment for at least probably a month. The fact that you blink, normally and naturally. But if you didn't, your eyes would probably dry out and risk the danger of going blind, which would radically affect your life. You have a nerve running down uh, the back of your neck that uh, connects to the diaphragm that causes you to, to breathe without really thinking about it. And one of the dangers in, in some accidents when people break their neck is that nerve severs. That one little nerve severs and it stops breathing, the breathing process in the body. One little nerve and our whole bodies are dead. It's pretty insignificant. We don't really think about it until we have to, whether a family member or ourselves have been in an accident or someone we know. Within the body, physically, and also within this body, the body of Christ, the church, if one person, if one role isn't being fulfilled, isn't being done, it doesn't just affect you. It affects the person next to you, all around you. It affects the whole body. When we get jealous and envious because, oh, well, we're not like them, so I'm just going to twiddle my thumbs and do nothing. Beyond being selfish, you're harming everyone, including yourself. That's kind of what Paul's driving at here with his body imagery. But Paul, in in order to talk about these gifts that have been given, Paul uses this Old Testament quote uh, from the Psalms, from Psalm 68, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. Uh, the picture here is from the Psalms is of God as this conquering king. And in the ancient world, when a king would go out to battle and would win, the king would come back with, with all of his armies in this great, big, glorious return. And the king would come in first. And then behind him, some of his army, and then all the captives that they've, they've conquered the people that they conquered, and they would be paraded through the city. And all the spoils of war would kind of be be tossed out and thrown out to the city. That's the picture that Paul uses here to talk about God giving these gifts to us as believers, as his church. That Christ, and Paul takes this Old Testament reference to God and applies it to Christ. Christ, as a conquering king, who descended from heaven, and here this is the the explanation of the descent and ascent, descended to heaven, 
conquered our enemies of death and sin through his life, through his death and resurrection, and ascended back to heaven, and now has dispensed upon the church the spoils of victory. The Holy Spirit has now been poured out upon us. And we now live in the Spirit. But also, notice here that Paul um, talks about that he ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. There is nothing in the entire cosmos, in the entire universe, that's not touched by Christ. There is no place where he isn't. This reminds me of a, um, there's this Dutch theologian of, of the 20th century, um, Abraham Kuyper. Um, and he's a really fascinating guy. He was prime minister of, of uh, the Netherlands. He was, uh, had a newspaper that he started and ran, helped start a university. Uh, I mean, he, he did just about everything. He makes me jealous sometimes how much this guy could accomplish. Um, but in one of his lectures one time, he says that Jesus Christ looks out on the entire universe, the entirety of our lives, and he says, every square inch of that is mine. Your jobs, your thoughts, your hobbies, your abilities, your weaknesses, your salvation, everything belongs to Christ. There is nothing in this world, there is no sphere, there is no realm that is outside the touch of Christ. And he claims it all for himself. This is what Paul will later say, I believe it's in the, the book of Colossians, that that Christ will be all in all, that all things are in him and through him and by him and for him. That the entire universe works to sing for the glory of God. That's why it's created. That's why we were created, to glorify and enjoy God forever. And our lives ought to be about that. Moving on, um, Paul goes on to, to talk about some of the specific gifts that he's given to the church. And please, this is not an exhaustive list that Paul gives. You can, you can compare this to some of his other writings and see that, that this is just a sampling um, of the gifts that, that Paul has in mind. He says he's given, that God has given some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors or teachers. He kind of lumps those two together. And the point here is not that, that this is it. But Paul uses these gifts as an illustration or or by analogy to explain all the gifts. That these gifts, which are typically understood as as, uh, the officers of the church or the leaders of the church, um, they have been given so that the saints, the church as a whole, can be equipped, can be taught, that can be um, uh, encouraged and brought together. And by analogy, that's why all the gifts have been given. All of the gifts, all the talents that that God has given us have been given to us for use of the body, for use of the church to be um, built up and to grow together. When our our gifts and when our abilities are used for one another in the church, when they are used properly for the body of Christ, then what happens? Well, the text says we reach the unity of the faith And we increase in the knowledge of the Son of God. You see, when we use our gifts, when we exercise our gifts and our abilities, then we start to realize the unity that's already ours in Christ Jesus. We recognize and we manifest the oneness 
that has already been brought together in us. And we increase in our knowledge of God. We grow together in our interconnectedness. Over the last several years, I've come to learn a lot about myself. And one of the things I've realized is my gifting is not necessarily mercy or hospitality. Not that, I, not that I'm not compassionate towards people who need compassion. You know, I've cried a lot this week in Haiti, and, and my heart breaks for that. It's not that I'm, I don't welcome people into my home. I, I try to as best as I can. That's just, my wife on the other, she's great at that. She's, hospitality is her thing. She does it well. Because that's not my gifting, that limits what I can know about God. And that's why I need people in my life who have that gift. Because when there's people in my life who are exercising their gift of hospitality and their gift of mercy, I come to learn what it means to live the Christian life. And I come to learn what God is like in his mercy he's shown to me as I see that mercy shown to other people. In the hospitality that God has shown to me in the fact that he has opened his family, he has opened the doors to heaven, he has opened his life and welcomed me in as I am. All my neuroses and messed up life that it is, he's welcomed me in. And as I see that played out in the body, I come to understand God in ways that I can't on my own. I can't understand these things without other people speaking them into my life. When we use our gifts for the building up of the church, we become mature. As Paul says, we, we, we become a mature man, grown up. You see, here's the crazy thing. We can't grow up in our Christian life. We can't become mature in our Christian life unless we grow together. Unless we do it as one body, one church, with the one spirit that's within us. We grow up closer to Christ as we grow together in our unity. And as we grow together in our unity, we end up growing up closer to Christ. This is the radical importance of the church, of the community of the saints, of believers living one with another. It's interesting that almost all of Paul's letters weren't written to individuals. They were written to the churches. And the ones that were written to individuals were done so for the purpose of the church community. When Paul talks about you in the New Testament, it's... I grew up in Virginia, um, which is a great place. Um, and, and I actually I joke around with my students at school that we actually use proper grammar in the South. Okay, This whole notion of y'all, that's proper grammar. Okay? That, is, um, that is the second, uh, the second person plural of you. It's kind of like you guys. Okay? It's... It, and we have a hard time distinguishing this. It's kind of context. When someone says you, it's kind of context whether they mean me or like us. Okay? And so in the South, we retain the y'all. Um, so as to, to mark out the you as the individual versus the you as in the plurality. 90% of the time when Paul says you in the New Testament, he means y'all. Okay? He means you all. 
So when he says you grow up in maturity, he means you all will grow up in maturity. Let's move on. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14. Then we will no longer be infants. Notice, notice the play here between the mature man and the infant. Okay, Paul's making a, 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 a contrast here. We will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching, by the cunning and craftiness of men in the, their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Do you see the infant? The infant is like it's like a boat on a lake in a storm, tossed here and there with no control, no ability, no way to navigate. That's what it means to be immature. It means to be tossed around by anything. And we've all know people like this, and, and, and oftentimes we're like this. You know, we read a book, and, and that's now the cool, great thing, that idea that we find. And then another new idea comes along, so we jump on that, and we'll try that for a while. And then a new idea comes around, so we jump on that for a while, and that's like the cool thing, and all life is about this. And we just chase one idea to the next, 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 and so on and so forth. We chase on fads. It's a sign of being an infant, of not being grounded, of not being mature. You see, the one who is mature, the church that is mature, is grounded in their theology. They can speak love in truth. And that notion of truth here is it's talking about doctrine. And I, and I teach theology in, at, a, at a prep school, and so I always get this question, of, well, isn't theology all this old, dead, stuffy, unimportant, irrelevant stuff of life? No. Theology is the stuff of life. I love the Puritans. They get a bad rap, uh, but I love the Puritans because they're people of heart and of passion, and they knew how to live life. And one of, one of my favorite, William Perkins, he defined theology as the art of living toward God. Our theology is the art of living toward God. You see, theology, whether you admit it or not, and whether you've thought through it or not, is going to shape every aspect of your life. What you think about God and about yourself, about the church, is going to shape what you do. For example, not rightly understanding the sovereignty of God, that he is the creator of all things, and that he exercises providence over all things so that nothing is outside of his control. If we don't understand that, then we're going to worry about our lives all the time. We're going to try and control our lives. When we don't think that there's a God who loves us and is passionate about us and desires our good, if, if we fail to recognize that that God is in control of every circumstance of our lives, we're going to find the need to micromanage our lives. We're going to find the need to find the answer to our problems. Rather than trusting good or bad, God's working all things for his glory. And that may mean that we go through some really tough stuff. The sovereignty and the love and the goodness of God doesn't mean that we don't go through tough stuff that hurts, that's painful, that, that in the midst of what we think might destroy us. It means that in all of this, he's working his glory 
in ways that we cannot always understand at the moment. And yet in hindsight, we wouldn't be able to love him the way we do without those things. We wouldn't recognize our own limits and our own need for him and our own brokenness and fractured lives. Doctrine's important. It's not an insignificant aspect of our lives. And then Paul goes on here to finish out with the image of the body, that we are tied together as ligaments in a body, knitted together, if you will, with Christ as our head, as the leader, as the central part. And the body of Christ is properly supported only when the whole body is doing its role. When the toes are doing their thing, when the legs are doing their thing, when the fingers are doing their things, when the kidneys are working rightly, only then can a body be fully functioning and fully supported. So what? What does all this mean? It means we ought to fight for the unity that's already ours. We ought to seek to preserve, as Paul says, this unity that's been given to us. We ought to We ought to embrace it. We ought to realize that we're unified with the person around us, not because they look like us, not because we we have something in common with them, but because they're saved by Christ and we're saved by Christ and thus we're together in Christ. And therefore we are unified with them. And we ought to live that out. And there's a lot of things in our lives and in our culture that just that seek to shatter the unity of, of the church. I mean, my wife and I were talking, geography is one of them. It's easy in a first century world where everyone lives in the same city and literally very close to each other. It's easy to, to daily live amongst one another. It's hard for us because our geography has, has taken us to very different parts of, of, of this Boston region. So it's, it's hard to to daily live out that unity, but we ought to fight for it. We ought to strive to find ways to be in one another's lives, to be in one another's homes, and to have others in our home, despite geography. (coughs) We ought to understand that part of this unity and part of fighting for this unity is properly using the gifts that we have. You all have talents that have been given to you. You all have giftings, supernatural giftings and talents that have been given to you by Christ so that his church and his kingdom can grow. And as we use those and as we exercise those, as we find outlets for those in the church, we are unified with one another. We are brought together. And who knows, you exercising your gift may actually be what somebody else needs to see right now. And by not doing it, You're not helping them. And you may not even know it. Furthermore, we can't do it alone. We can't do Christianity alone. Christianity is not a Lone Ranger thing. It's not about our individual spirituality. Spirituality is wrapped up with one another. And our growth is wrapped up in the church. And we ought to strive for maturity. We ought to strive to live in thick community with one another where our lives impact and rub up against each other and challenge each other. Let me return to where I began with N.T. Wright 
And let me read this quote again, and let me give you a little bit more context for it. And he writes, says, Of course, every single human being is summoned in his or or her uniqueness to respond personally to the gospel. Nobody in their right mind would deny that. But there is no such thing as an individual Christian. Paul's gospel created a community. And his doctrine of justification, his doctrine and understanding of salvation, sustained that community. And ours must do no less. Every week when we gather, we do communion. We partake of the bread and the wine or juice. And in doing this, we proclaim the death of Christ on our behalf. We proclaim what Christ himself did for us. That he was broken on a tree, that his body was shattered, and that his blood was poured out. That's one of the things that we proclaim when we partake of communion. But another thing that we proclaim when we take the, the bread and the wine is we proclaim our unity as the body of Christ. As we partake of the body of Christ and the blood of Christ, Paul says we are the body of Christ as well. We manifest the body of Christ. He says this great in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 through 22. And here, remember, the you is the, the good old southern y'all. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole body, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you, you all, too, are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. I challenge you this morning as we partake of the sacrament of communion, as we partake partake of the body of Christ and the blood of Christ, remember what Christ has done for us. Remember that our lives have now been incorporated into the divine life of God through his son Christ. And we have put on Christ in our identity. Who you are is to be found in nothing other than Christ himself. And remember that in this, we too are the body of Christ. Our lives are inextricably wrapped up with one another. We are bound to one another like the ligaments and the muscles and the nerves of a body. And as we partake of this together, we do it as the body of Christ. This meal, this this communion, is for all those who have proclaimed Christ as their Savior, who have come to understand that their lives are lived by God's grace and are saved by the mercy of God. For all those of you who identify yourself with Christ as a Christian, this is for you. If you haven't understood what it means to be saved through through Christ, if you haven't given your life to Christ, I, I encourage you to to meditate on these things, to observe, watch what we do as we proclaim the death of Christ for our sins and for our brokenness to heal us. Think on these things. Let us pray. Father, you have shown us mercy and grace. 
in sending your Son to redeem us, to transform us into a new way of living and a new way of, a, of existing in this world. Father, you have bound us together as one body, as one people, and you have gifted us with diverse gifts so that we could use them for one another. Father, as we continue to worship you, Father, may we draw close to you with our heads and with our hearts, with our lips, with all that is within us as we come to take of your body and the blood of your Son. May you take this and as we ingest it, may we not transform it, but may it transform us into the image of your very Son, Christ our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Let's just.